Good morning. You, you may not, you may or may not be aware, we, we have a prayer chapel in this church, and it's just the other side of this wall over here. And in that prayer chapel, there is a prayer journal, and you are invited to go and not just use the prayer journal, uh, or the prayer chapel, that is, but if you want to record your request uh, or a praise or something to that effect in that journal, then you're invited to do that. Um, and so I'm over there uh, at one point recently, and I'm checking that journal, and this is something that I read from an unnamed uh, little kiddo at our church who wrote this. Dear Lord, please help my brother to be nicer to me <laughs> so that we can do fun activities. Amen. And my heart just went out to that. Like, I don't, I don't know if that was a little boy or a little girl. Uh, I, I kind of envisioned a girl probably because I have a daughter and she has uh, an older brother, my son. I remember those years when they would mix it up and they would get in trouble and then they would end up kind of suffering the consequences for one another's sins. Uh, but, uh, but my heart went out to that. I want to give it to you again. Dear Lord, please help my brother to be nicer to me so that we can have fun activities. Amen. Now, I just want to say that the Lord is answering that prayer. And mom and dad may not say so right about now. I don't know. I don't know who that family is. But Jesus, as we've been reading in Isaiah, came back. You know, he, 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 he came that first time, chapter 52 into 53, like a lamb to the slaughter, pierced for our transgressions. We esteemed him not. It says even there that we regarded him as ugly in appearance. But it also says there that God, his father, God, our Father, was pleased to crush him so that he could bear our sins, so that he could handle them, so that he could deal with them once and for all. And that's good news for that little girl, and that's good news for us. Goes on from chapter 53 there and into 54, and the good news just keeps coming. Remember chapter 54 that he establishes his covenant of peace with us. And there in verse 10 it says, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken says the Lord who has compassion on you. And then into chapter 55, and it's just more compassion, and, and, and the Lord says, I'm, I'm going to send my word as perfectly and universally authoritative. You know, just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout and bearing uh, 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 
water for the drinker and bread for the eater, something to that effect. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Powerful. And we got into chapter 56 through 59 and Pastor Trent over the last several weeks has been talking about these things with which we need to engage our culture. You know, as a church here, ways that we need to get out there and how we need to be among them. And so he's talking about know the truth. You gotta know the truth before you live the truth. And he's talking about the very great need to account for and to address racial division in our country. And he's talking about the need to embrace a biblical sexuality. And he's talking about, hey, let's get serious about genuine neighborliness. And he's talking about, hey, let's create some margin, some, some spiritual rhythm in our lives that will translate into margin, spiritual health, as we live out our days empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now you come up to chapter 60, and it's all about glory, and it's all about glory coming our way. We don't have time to look at that this morning, but we do have time to look at chapter 61 a little bit, and if you have your Bible, you turn to chapter 61, because it doesn't stop with the glory in chapter 60. It kicks in with favor in chapter 61. And so we're going to take a look at what that favor consists of and how it is that Jesus brings that our way. And by the time we get to 62, he's going to come with this idea of, hey, you are my bride and my delight is in you. And in fact, I want to give you this name. My delight is in her because I am in love with you. And it's so strong, it makes me want to just jump to chapter 62, but we got to look at 61. And just this idea that God, you know, first off in this chapter is saying, in my favor I want to turn you into oaks of righteousness. And then by the time we get into chapter 62, the idea being that as oaks of righteousness, I'm just going to, I'm so full of delight, I just want to be with you and will be with you forever. So that's where we're going. You're there and I'm not. Reading verse 1 says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who, who do you think is talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the suffering servant. He's talking himself in the first person. He's saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Spirit of the Lord is, you know, I, I, I've been anointed by the Lord. I've been anointed by the Father. So you've got all three members of the Trinity are here and, and they're present to kind of commence the mission or to announce that this is what's going to be happening now. He's talking about Jesus. 
And Jesus happened to say so later on in Scripture. We find that when he does come and he's walking the earth and he happens to visit, <coughs> he happens to visit his own hometown of Nazareth, and he's there, and, and, and on the Sabbath day, which in their time was uh, Saturday, and so he goes in and he uh, stands and he reads from this very text in Isaiah 61. And then he sits down and he says, this text has just been fulfilled in your midst. In other words, he's saying, that's me. <laughs> and he begins to talk about the text a little bit, and at first they're very pleased with what they hear. And this is chapter 4 of the book of Luke. And they're very pleased. And he keeps talking and he talks as though, you know, I don't want to necessarily let you get away with something here. I'm aware that in his hometown, a prophet gets despised. And so he begins to say some things there. And so they end up actually wanting to take him and toss him off the cliff there in town. Do you remember that text? That was their reception of Jesus showing up and saying, he has anointed me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I'm coming with only good news for the poor and for the broken and for the grieving and for the bound. And I find it interesting, by the way, that he doesn't say that he's come necessarily for the saved, and he doesn't say that he's come necessarily for the unsaved. He says he's come for the poor and for the broken and so on. So we'll keep reading, but it's talking about Jesus there in verse 1. So the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and not just the financially poor, by the way. I'd say even more so to the spiritually poor. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. You remember that from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? To bring good news to the poor. And in particular... Those of us who are at that point maybe in life where I've done something or I've had a season in my life that was characterized by a certain mood or decisions that I had made. I was that kind of person then. Maybe I still feel like I'm that kind of person now, but that whatever it is, it has to be unpardonable by God. And so I feel wretched in my soul. I am beyond poor. I am, it, it feels like I, I just, I'm, I'm saturated in, in misery. And I don't know what to do about that. And Jesus is saying, I have good news for you. You're the very person I want to reach. And so it's good news. For that person, it's good news for the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. 
He hasn't sent me, by the way, to bind up those who are um, comfortable, those who are in charge, those who are in control, those who have got kind of that steady, um, pre-planned life and everything is going smoothly for them. He's talking about, no, to bind up the brokenhearted, the person whose soul just feels crushed. People that, in many cases, don't even want to continue to live because it just hurts so bad. And I want to proclaim liberty to those people who feel captive. It says, in the opening of the prison, to those who are bound, to those who feel as though maybe release is even impossible to imagine, then I want to help. And I want to free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because that's what I'm about. I want to proclaim favor to people. And the day of vengeance of our God, which by the way, it's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't say that in Luke chapter 4, probably because in his first trip to earth, he didn't intend to bring vengeance. He had come with the idea of, no, I want to atone, atonement for all my sons and daughters. And so that's why I'm going. But even so, we read it here in, in Isaiah, and it says, in the day of vengeance of our God, and you can bet that when he comes a second time, that his second coming at points will definitely be marked by vengeance. It says in the book of Nahum that our God is a jealous and avenging God. That the Lord takes vengeance and he's filled with wrath, it even says there. A little tiny, minor prophet. Those are texts that we at times don't want to hear from. Don't want to imagine that 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 can be true about God. Yet I want to say, just maybe remind us that I think it is true that we can be in a position where we're being abused by somebody, something, someone, maybe a group of people even, and that there's something very comforting to know that Jesus will deal with that. He will end that so that you don't have to continue to live a life beneath that. That he does come back and he does avenge. He says, nowhere in scripture, vengeance is mine, I might repay. He says, vengeance is mine, it's not yours, it's not up to you to avenge yourself, but it is up to me and I will do it. Not I might, if I happen to remember, but I will do it. I can remember years ago in another ministry, and I had someone who, it just seemed to me, was so committed, uh, part, of, part of our team, but so committed uh, to, to almost ruining my ministry. And I couldn't figure that out, and I prayed about it, prayed about it. 
and years went by. And then uh, this person happened to get uh, very sick, almost, uh, deathly sick. And I can re- still remember the day, af- this is after a number of months, I mean a good, I was, it was almost a year of sickness for this person. And I can remember exactly where I was sitting in the room that I was in and having this impression that I believe was from the Lord saying, this person has probably suffered enough don't you think so? And will you go ahead and pray for this person to now be healed? Now, please, please understand, I, 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 this was not me trying to curse this person. I had no idea that this had anything to do with me, but I had that impression, and it was so strong on the back end that I remember saying, uh, yeah, Father, I'm a little shocked by that, but please heal this person in their life, and that within two weeks, that person was restored. And and, and I thought, oh my word, like I didn't even know it at the time, but God will answer that kind of prayer on behalf of his beloved. That vengeance sometimes does come into play, even here and now. Interesting. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Not just singing when it comes to praise, but life. You know? Praise isn't just a matter of we show up at church or not on a Sunday morning and we happen to sing three songs. We commission a few missions teams. We'll hopefully sing a song at the end of the sermon. That's not the limit of our praise. Oh my word, that's such a small slice of it. Praise with life. That's the kind of praise that he's talking about bringing here. Not just singing, but life that they may be called oaks of righteousness, rooted, it's a permanent, you know, broad and full, strong, giving support, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. That's the kind of new life that Jesus wants to bring with this good news. Take a look at verses five through seven says this, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. A new reputation. So not only new life, but a new reputation in the favor of Christ. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. And they'll call you priests, not lords. It's such a gracious um, turning of the tables, isn't it? He's talking about those who had been Israel's enemies. But rather than bring them into a place of subjection to you and you can do whatever you want and mess with their lives and make them pay... He's saying, no, I'm going to have them come and they're going to do some farming for you. 
And they're going to do some shepherding for you. They're going to dress your vines. They're going to work their way through your vineyards. And it's going to be sweet for them, and it's going to be sweet for you. And amidst this, this new life that I'm giving you, they're going to refer to you, uh, whether that's subconsciously or, or they're going to be kind of declaring this about you, uh, and they're going to be very vocal about it. Regardless, their impression of you, your reputation that they will give you is that you are going to be more likened to priests and ministers than lords or anything abusive toward them. And it's going to be a wonderful, sweet society. You imagine your reputation. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. It means a lot to me that there's no bitterness in their situation. There's no, um, I hate my lot in life anymore. I mean, have you been there, you know, in your life where um, you wonder, you know, why, why are you assigning me such severe trials, Father. I know I read the Bible and theologically I can agree that, okay, I probably need this to be sanctified and to be made to look more like Jesus and so forth, but I hate it because it hurts and I can't see the end in sight. I want it to go away. And I resent my lot in life. I believe that you are sovereign and I think that you are good to other people but I'm not sure that you're good to me because I don't see a lot of your goodness toward me right now in in my life. And so I'm just angry about that. And I resent my lot in life. And what he's saying here is there will come a day when those days will be no more. And isn't that good news? The situation has changed. And not only the situation, but your attitude toward it. To the point where instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Wonderful. So, new life, new reputation, new standard. It says in verse 8, just want to read the first two lines of verse 8. It says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And you might have a little footnote in your Bible, I don't know, I do, uh, here after the word wrong, and it says this, or robbery with a burnt offering is the idea there. You know what's going on there? Is this attitude that sometimes we can have that says, um, okay, what I really want is to be able to uh, gain a lot for myself. And so really the only way for me to go about that is for me to steal from other people. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what it takes to gather from you all what it is that's going to make my life better and just give me more of what I happen to desire. But then I'm going to start to feel a little bit guilty about that because, oh my, I'm being selfish. And I don't want to feel selfish. 
And I don't want to feel self-centered. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer God a burnt offering. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to approach God and I'm going to kind of uh, semi-confess my sin. I'm going to kind of portray myself as repentant. And so if I can get these two things simultaneously going, then I can get what I want and I can alleviate my feelings of guilt and that seems to me to be a pretty good way to live. And it's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to live. And probably what ought to drive the conviction that that's not a good way to live most is the fact that God hates it. Because that's what he just said there, right? He said, I love justice, but I hate this thing of robbery with a burnt offering. Maybe what comes to mind would be something like Hosea when, it said, when God says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You, want to see, you read a verse like that and you want to say, well, I thought that burnt offerings were an acknowledgement of God. And God is saying, no, not necessarily. It's very easy for you to go through the motions, to jump through the hoops, to give the burnt offerings without actually acknowledging me in your life is what he's saying there. Or even that scene in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul has been up to no good and he's kind of taken it upon himself to do some things, to sacrifice some sheep and so forth, or to save some sheep, and, uh, and he tries to explain to Samuel, hey, I've, I've only been doing this uh, because I want to be serious about the Lord and I want to worship and so forth. And Samuel comes back to Saul and says, no, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. <sighs> Love that phrase. And to heed than the fat of rams. God loves justice, and our standard, a new standard built on his affections for perfect justice, built on his character, and that he is perfectly just. So those three things, new life, new reputation, new standard, then jump over to chapter 62. It says, new name in verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Did you know that he will give us a new name? And I love that. And, and you know, right away, I, I remembered, there's a text in Revelation chapter 2, and I forget the exact verse, but it's talking to the church in Pergamum. And if you remember those letters of Jesus to those seven churches there, and he's saying, hey, if you can hang in there, if you can, if you can live the kind of life in my spirit that conquers the unrighteousness that is in you, in the church, around you, there in town, what have you, if you can conquer, then I'm going to do some things. Some things are coming your way as reward. And in that particular church, the church in Pergamum, he said this. 
uh, that one of the things that's going to come is that I'm going to take a white stone and I'm going to write a name on it for you as an individual, not for you as a church, but for you as an individual. I'm going to write that name and then I'm going to pass you that stone. And there are going to only be two people in the universe who know that name, me and you. Like, I want that name. I, 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 I want the kind of name that I get to share only with him. You know, I, it's my wife, and I love you. And you know I love him more. And I know you love him more. You'll get that name too. To have something that's so dear, so precious, and so um, particular in his affection and in his intimacy that he wants just with you as an individual that he's willing to do that. And not just willing, he wants to do that. It's not something that we've come up with and said, oh, please give me that name. It's something that he has come up with and says, I want to do this for you. Just me and you. Do you want that from him? New name. Goes on, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a new look. When the Lord makes us beautiful. Do you recall, it's one of the most graphic chapters in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 16, when Ezekiel, as the Holy Spirit is leading him, is describing Israel, and he likens Israel metaphorically to a baby that has just been born, um, but that it has been born and left in the open field. And so it hasn't been washed, and its cord has not been cut. Okay, this is in Ezekiel 16. And it's the thrashing about, and it's got hay and stubble and blood and it's a graphic picture. And God says, and then I walked by. And, you know, I, I picked you up. And I washed you off. And I reared you. And then you became a woman and I clothed you, and I gave you necklaces and bracelets and a nose ring, by the way. He says there in Ezekiel 16, to make you beautiful and to make you, and this, this, is, the word he, this, is, the word, this is the word God uses, to make you mine. I'm not just giving you a new look. Owning you. You belong to me. Such good news. It's just such good news. 
goes on in verse 3. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That new relationship, married. Here's here's why I love that. Here's what I was so looking forward to more than anything else, just sharing with us this morning that we read in different places, especially in the New Testament, that yes, we have this this marriage uh, wherein we are the bride and he is the bridegroom. And and, and we see that, for instance, in Revelation 21. We we see that, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we, We see that in different places. Yes, we're bride, he's bridegroom. A comment about our status. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 5 that he's going to be presenting us as blameless someday. He's in the role, the, the, the task, he's at the task of purifying us as time goes by, readying us for heaven, that banquet feast, that wedding feast that we're going to have someday. So it's a comment about our character and the kind of people, what will characterize the church, holy, unblemished. I love that too. But this chapter, which has become my favorite text anywhere in the Bible on this concept of marriage and being wed to him, goes above and beyond that because what it's saying here is I delight in her. I feel it, is what he's saying. I'm not just committed to her. I'm all about her and I'm only about her, is what he's saying. So in love. I was sharing a little bit with my wife and we were, we were Skyping with uh, my daughter who lives in Australia and her husband last night. I was just sharing a little bit about that because I was so excited about that. And, and, and Kim turns to me and she says, I wish you would say that to me. <laughs> And immediately, you know, Aaron, or I'm sorry, Anna, kind of looks over her shoulder at Aaron, her husband, and says, uh, I wish you would say that to me. It's, it's, it's this idea. I know you love me, but are you in love with me? I, I, I know that you sacrifice. I know that you um, bring home the, the bacon or bring home the bread, whatever, the, you know. I know that you're committed but do you want to be, do you enjoy the fact that you're committed to me? Jesus Christ is saying to us, I love that because I am in love with you. Not because you're lovable, but because I'm a God of love and I just can't help myself. I find you that attractive and the better I make you, the more beautiful you become. I never want to live apart from you. Yeah, I was going to have, I was going to show some, um, (laughs) I was going to show some uh, movie clips this morning. Just didn't have time to get to it this week. 
but I want to share. It's going to it's going to require it's going to require some imagination. So it's you know work at it. But I want you to see this. Um, a couple of Victorian era movies. Not that the movies were made then, but that they depict lives and stories from that time. Um, the book by Thomas Hardy, Far From the Matting Crowd. Don't know if you've read that. Don't know if you've seen a movie that's come out somewhat recently, Far From the Matting Crowd. There is a character. Uh, interestingly enough, his name is Gabriel Oak. And toward the beginning of the movie, he goes to the heroine, uh, the protagonist in the movie, whose name is uh, Bathsheba. And she's this uh, pretty little slip of a thing. And uh, he goes to her and he says this. Um, I, th I think her last name is Eberdeen. And, and he says, uh, Miss Eberdeen, I, I have a couple of hundred sheep and I want to ask you to marry me. And I've never asked anyone before. And they're standing out there on the moor, and the wind is blowing. She's got long, curly, dark hair, and she's kind of wiping it out of her eyes, looking up at him. She kind of has to shield, looking up. He's kind of a bigger guy. And she says, Gabriel, I'm too independent. She says, um, you know, if you were to marry me, you would... I would want you to tame me, but I don't believe that you could do that. And she says then, you would learn to despise me. And she turns him down. And he's just standing there, looking her straight in the eye, and he doesn't blink. And after a moment he says, I would not. Ever. And he turns around and walks away because she's already turned him down. There's another scene. You'd have to watch the movie to see what happens there for the end. There's another movie, another Victorian book by a woman named Elizabeth Gaskell. So you didn't know this about me. I, I'm, I'm a bird watcher. I love to sniff candles at Yankee and White Barn. And I kind of like Victorian literature. <laughs> Elizabeth Gaskell, and she wrote a book called Wives and Daughters. And toward the end of that, the main guy and the main girl come together, and he's been quarantined because he's sick. And so they're trying to, they're going to send him away. And she goes running down through the town to see if she can catch his coach before he departs. And it's pouring down rain. And she just misses the coach, she thinks, but then she turns around and he's gotten off the coach. And so they're standing there, but they're about 20 feet apart because he's still maybe sick. And she can't get too close. And... He says to her, this is why I've gotten off the, the carriage, is because I love you. And I want you to be my wife. 
And he goes on, and as he's going on and trying to propose to her, she's standing there, just torrential downpour, and she's kind of looking at him like this. And she's 20 feet away from him, and she says, yes. And immediately, a second time, yes. And then again, yes, I will. Yes. Yeah, she must say yes, and, and she's not hyper. She's not jumping all around. She's locked on. She is totally locked on to him to the point where he can't even finish his proposal. And she can't run and hug him or kiss him or anything like that. Yes. Yes. And I want to say that is exactly the point of application that we need to have when it comes to his labeling of us. My delight is in her. Bring it. Yes. That's my answer. That's my application. Whatever you want to do, I trust you. I, I know that you're not going to abuse me. You're not going to manipulate me. I can entrust myself to you. You love me. That's the application point. And I've got just enough time to turn us to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. You can leave Isaiah. We're not going to go back there. We don't have enough time. But you've got to just hear this in Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon, which everyone says is an allegory. Now, not that it didn't literally happen once upon a time between these particular characters it describes and what they said, but that it is an allegory between the love of Christ for us and his pursuit of us. And so you see who I believe Jesus in chapter 4 describing us. And he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock shorn of shorn ewes that you've come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks, he talks about, okay? Behind your veil, um, your neck, he talks about. It's like the Tower of David. This is all compliments, by the way. You know, verse 5. We're going to skip verse 5. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the rated R version here. I know it's in the Bible, but we'll pass on verse 5. Uh, in, in fact, we're going to pass on a fair bit of this, but, but because just how... Oh, it's not salacious, but it's, he wants her. But here, here is how, he takes 15 verses to talk about her this way. I want you and only you. I take such joy in you. I want to commit to you. I want it to be only you. There's some exclusivity to this. Only you will do. 15 verses. And she gets one verse, the last verse of the chapter, and this is what she says in verse 16. Okay, if you're going to refer to me as a garden, which is very definitely, you know, here in the context of the book, is a sexual metaphor. A garden fountain, a well of living water in verse 15, and flowing stream. If you're going to refer to me as that, then here's my response to that. Here's our response to Jesus. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. 
let its spices flow. <laughs> let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choice, its fruit. In other words, bring it. She is not coy. She does not play games with Jesus. We don't do that. Our response to him in light of Isaiah 61, 62 is, whatever you want to do, O Jesus, we trust you, bring it. Let the winds blow and let the spices flow. Bring it. Bring it. That's the application. Bring the new life. Bring the new reputation. Bring the new standard. Bring the new name. Bring the new look. And bring this relationship. That's what we want. All right? I'm going to pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, fuel that response from us so that whatever it is that you want to do, we invite you, we open up our arms, we just say, please, I want to welcome this, I want to rejoice in this, I want to revel in this, whatever you have in mind, because we trust you. And we love you, and we understand that we love you because you first loved us this way. And so, in the same way that you only want more of us, make us want more of you. And we ask for that in the name of Jesus. And that you just be fueling that every day. Amen.